Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jory Chevalier, and today our guest is author and futurist Daniel Pink. Dan studies and writes about large-scale social and economic trends. His first book, Free Agent Nation, was a Washington Post bestseller and showed us the trend towards entrepreneurship and independent contracting. A free agent himself, Dan is a keynote speaker at corporations, associations, and universities around the world. A Whole New Mind was published in 2005 and has been translated into 12 languages. This book focuses on the rising value of right brain skills in the workplace. Dan's soon-to-be-released The Adventures of Johnny Bunko represents a creative departure for a business book in America. Hear about this and much more as we welcome Dan Pink to Living Hero. Dan, you've been a hero of mine since I first came in contact with your work in the neuroscience section of Wired Magazine in 2005 with Revenge of the Right Brain. And that was kind of a teaser text to your book, A Whole New Mind, Why Right Brainers Will Rule the Future. You have actually said that the MFA, the Master of Fine Arts, is the new MBA. And you must know that this is heavenly music to artists and creative (laughs) people. And it sounds almost too good to be true. So how is this happening? And are there specific populations, industries, companies who are the early adopters of the whole new mind? Well, the truth is I myself am not an artist at all. I happen to be a very left-brained, analytical, sequential uh, kind of guy. And what I've done over the last couple of years is taken a pretty hard-headed look at the facts, at the evidence, at the data of what's going on in the economy, um, at the level of individual careers, at the level of organizational performance. And to me, it's pretty clear that the scales are tilting that the set of abilities that used to get you ahead, the logical, linear, sequential, analytical, SAT, spreadsheet kind of abilities, what we might think of as left-brain abilities, metaphorically, those abilities still matter, but they fundamentally matter less. And a different set of abilities, a set of abilities that we might think more metaphorically as right-brain kind of abilities, artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big-picture thinking, those are now the abilities that are the first among equals. Those are the abilities that now matter more in just about every endeavor. And the idea that the, the MFA being the new MBA is just in some ways a shorthanded version of that. That is, the capacities that artists have uh, have a value in the economy in a way that many of the capacities that MBAs lack. Um, and let me explain why this is happening. There are three forces, I think, that are tilting the scales. They're what the three A's, what I call abundance, Asia, and automation. Uh, by abundance, I mean this staggering level of material prosperity deep into the middle class. I mean, if you look at some of the numbers you have in this country, you know, um, more automobiles than you have licensed drivers. You have roughly you know, 90% cell phone penetration in this country. A material standard of living in this country, way, way, way deep into the middle class, uh, that is unprecedented. It's, it's actually staggering in a way. And what that has done is that's changed business in an important way. What it's meant is that the functional utilitarian side of any product service experience obviously still matters, but it's just not enough. And so the big differentiators tend to be these more right brain things, story and especially design. And so you see very much now uh, big companies going crazy trying to hire designers 
patrolling through art and design colleges looking for people with a BFA or an MFA because those are the sorts of abilities that are helping their products, services, experiences stand out. Those are the kinds of thinking skills that are uh, allowing them to conceive new products to see around corners. And so that's how abundance tilts the scales. Asia, which is connected to this, is that last century or last generation, we had routine mass production work going to Asia. Now we have routine white-collar work. And by routine white-collar work, I mean work that you can reduce to a script, to a spec sheet, to a formula, basic kinds of rule-based left-brain work that used to provide a good income in this country, certain kinds of computer programming, certain kinds of accounting, certain kinds of law. That kind of work now is a commodity racing to the cheapest cost provider. If you think of it metaphorically again, we're essentially outsourcing left brain work, leaving us to compete more and more with our right brain. And then finally, there's automation. And again, the story is fairly simple. Uh, last century, machines replaced our back, our muscle. This century, software is replacing our brains. But again, software right now can replace the left side of the brain, the logical, linear, sequential, rule-based side. And so you see it with tax preparation software displacing accountants, online legal services displacing lawyers. And so if you put it all together, Abundance Asia and Automation are actually putting this premium on these more MFA, right brain, artist-style capabilities. Because to make it today, you have to be able to do work that's hard to outsource, hard to automate, and that delivers on this new demand for aesthetics and beauty and significance. Well, what a shift. I mean, we all are familiar with the phrase starving artists. Right. And you know, artists really have traditionally struggled because their ideas are generally innovative and new and often counterculture. So are we really talking about artists becoming financially successful and lawyers and accountants being out of work? No, we're not talking that at all. I actually think that being a fine artist right now uh, is still very hard. I do think that more and more types of work demand an artistic sensibility. So you see, for instance, a good example at Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble, you know, huge company, consumer products company, very much in what's a commodity business, you know, soap, detergent, shampoo, hiring designers and attritioning engineers because they've kind of hit a ceiling on the engineering side of their offerings. What they need is people who can infuse it with a greater artistic significance sensibility. You see it with a company like Dell, company that was this very kind of left-brain, process-oriented engineering firm, lean supply chains and just-in-time management, and found themselves getting better and better and better at making a product that not as many people wanted. So you now have the words of Michael Dell himself, we're now in the fashion business. So as much as artists would probably relish this, I'm not saying that, you know, if you're a CPA or a computer programmer or a lawyer, you're going to end up, you know, bussing tables at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> or that if you're, a, if you're a painter, you're going to be driving around in a BMW. <laughs> what I think is happening is that an artistic sensibility has become a vital component in a whole range of professions, a whole range of industries where it never existed before. Now, to be fair, you still have to have these left-brain abilities. Let me, let me take a step back here, Jordan, for a second. I mean, people become artists. Not to get rich. I mean, fine arts is not instrumental in that way. People do that because they have something to say, because they, they have something they want to create, because they see the world in a way that no one else has seen it before. And I don't want to pollute that instinct with commerce necessarily. 
What I am saying is that if you look at this from the perspective of economics, if you watch how businesses are acting, if you look at the returns that are happening in labor markets today, it's clear that these artistic sensibilities and artistic aptitudes, which were, I think, fundamentally undervalued, are now getting valued more. It doesn't mean that everyone's, you know, hiring oil painters. But it does mean, honestly, that a company like General Motors is out there hiring sculptors, hiring sculptors from RISD, hiring sculptors from College of Creative Studies, hiring sculptors from Art Center College of Design. And that, let me take a step back here and, and talk about just performance in general. Um, there's some interesting research that on star performers and, you know, in a range of workplaces. And the, the, the studies, the study that I'm, I'm thinking of took took stars at 12 organizations, you know, the organizations nominated who their stars were, took them off-site, gave them a whole battery of cognitive tests, math, vocabulary, analytic reasoning, to try to crack the code of what it meant to be a star performer. They said, we can reverse engineer this, we can figure out the cognitive skills at the heart of star performance. They crunched the numbers, and there were no correlations. Some of the stars were great at math, some weren't, some had big vocabulary, some didn't. The only cognitive skill that had any predictive value was the ability to look at a welter of information and detect the meaningful patterns. Big picture thinking, symphonic thinking, the ability to make sense of a whole array of things and find out what's meaningful there. Well, to my mind, that is a fundamentally artistic sensibility. Musical artists do that very well. Visual artists do that very well. And so it's those sorts of capabilities that are getting the highest return now in labor markets. Well, the big picture question to me, especially when you speak of emphasizing, how does this translate in terms of a possible shift in cultural values? How will these aptitudes uh, actually show up? Will they show up simply as business as usual, which tends to appropriate people's hopes and sentiments and plug them into the consumerism that exists? Or do you see a possible... Shift. I mean, if we're really educating people to be synthesizers and genuinely uh, able to discern from a number of different disciplines, we might be looking at a different societal direction. What do you think? I think it's a very interesting question, and I mean, the honest answer is that I don't know. I think it's possible, and you can detect some stirrings out there in the way that there's now a market for things that traditionally there hasn't been a market for. Example. Uh, things like yoga and meditation, those sorts of things which were once very much on the fringe have now migrated much more to the mainstream. And so there are actually businesses in some fashion built around those kinds of things. If you look at consumer behavior, you have people buying hybrid cars, even though as a math problem it doesn't work out, that a hybrid car will not save you money on gas, you know, unless you keep the car for 37 years or something. But people buy it because it has lower emissions, because they want to live lighter. You look at the premium some people are willing to pay for organic cotton jeans because they're buying the supply chain, essentially. They're buying the narrative of how it got from the ground to one's body. And so I think that, I mean, whether it's going to be a wholesale change in cultural values, I don't know. I think that there are signs that individual behavior, as we see it expressed in marketplace behavior, uh, is changing. The other thing that I think is a fairly significant change is that there has been, and I'm sorry to be so kind of left brain analytic wonky about it, but there has been in a way a kind of democratization of the search for meaning. 
so that it used to be that if you wanted to spend a significant portion of your time or your treasure or your brain power pursuing meaning or purpose, you had to be either so wealthy you were exempt from the struggle for survival, or you essentially had to withdraw from the world and devote your life to meaning and purpose. Now it's a, it's an experience much more of the middle, because people have been liberated by prosperity, but not fulfilled by it. If you look at the data, there's been pretty significant growth in, in, in wealth in overall, in income, in, in just people's material well-being. It's been on the steady and exorable incline. But if you look at measures of satisfaction, things that ask people, are you satisfied with your life? Are you satisfied with the way things are going? Uh, are you happy? That trend line is actually stagnated. And so you have people sort of living in a materially prosperous world but deeply unfulfilled, reckoning with that and spending more of their time and their treasure and their brain power pursuing meaning. I think that has the potential to affect the values of the culture, too. But cultural values change very, 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 very slowly. Yes. Well, you're listening to Living Hero, and I'm Jari Chevalier. I want to urge all of you to buy not one, but several of Dan's books. Give one to your boss, to your spouse, a parent, your children, and, of course, one for yourself. You can go right to my site, livinghero.com, and click through to Amazon or just order from your favorite bookseller. But do it. Just order them. Dan, your readers enjoy the fruits of your creativity and your big-picture thinking and your imaginative wit through your writing. Would you share with us aspects of your own creative process and your understanding of it? For instance, do you experience flow states? Uh, Do you practice meditation or some other form of mindfulness practice? And do you practice any other forms of creative expression besides writing? Uh, all good, uh, interesting questions. Uh, uh, you know, and I, I think that in, in, in some ways people don't fully understand their own creative process. My creative process tends to be kind of both methodical and visual. So if you were here in my office, you would see a fair amount of stuff around and then a lot of writing surfaces, whiteboards and things like that. And the whiteboards tend to have keywords or maybe even tiny little drawings or things like that, and then arrows and circles and other stuff around them as I try to figure out the problem and see connections between things. So my first step is a very methodical acquisition of information and data, whether it's newspaper articles or conversations with people. Um, I'm kind of a compulsive note-taker. I'm a compulsive filer as well. I like to kind of bathe in as much information and, and stuff as I possibly can then, in a visual way, try to draw the connections between the two. And then when it comes to actually writing, again, I'm very methodical, methodical in the way that I guess a musician is methodical, in that if I'm on a writing project, it's important for me to write every day, and it's important for me pretty much to write the same time every day. So what I try to do is I try to get to my office, which is on the third floor of my house, early in the day, and try to write all morning until, you know, basically I'm too hungry and have to eat lunch. And I feel if I do that, and I do that every single day without fail, I can usually produce something good. Now, there are all kinds of battles one has to deal with in making sure one does all those things, and we can get to that in a moment. So that's generally my approach, something I've discovered over time that works pretty well for me. That said, I don't do any other kind of mindfulness exercises or things like that. And I like to think that I have in certain writing projects and things, 
I have a, a flow experience in that. But the one thing that's kind of curious is that where I do think that there is an element to mindfulness and certainly an element to flow experiences is that I run. And if I can, I try to run every day. I've actually been suffering from some kind of like bronchial infection or something for the last several days, about the last week, and so I haven't been able to run. And so I find myself getting crankier and less creative and less open to the world. And when I run, to me, it's a form, I don't want to overstate it, but it's a form in some ways of moving meditation. It allows me to kind of get transported to a different world. And I often have a lot of ideas, work through a lot of problems doing that as well. And as far as other kinds of creativity, I've taken drawing classes, and it's been helpful in the way that I see. I actually have become a much more, it's not so much artistic practice, but it's experiencing art from the safe distance of the audience, is that I've become much more inclined to read and learn about art in general in a way that I never would have before exploring the basket of ideas in a whole new mind. Example, my family and I went on vacation in December, and the book I took along was a biography of the artist Marcel Duchamp. Now, let me tell you, before A Whole New Mind, I probably didn't know who Marcel Duchamp was. There's no way in heck I would have ever been interested in what this guy's life was like. But now, understanding the life of an artist is very important for me to um, understand my own creative process. I just started the big biography of uh, de Kooning. Again, if you sort of see what it's like to iterate a new form of art, that gives you a lot of insight into the artistic mind and into one's own creative process. So I hope that kind of answers your question. Yeah, it's really good to hear all that, and I completely relate with your running experience. And I'm familiar with a short video put out by Herbert Benson Yeah. Uh, where he talks about these incredible powers of the mind of Tibetan adepts who can melt snow around their bodies. And <laughs> in that very same video, he talks about the mindfulness of the runner. So I do think that you're drawing from that experience the state of mind that can help you in your creative process for sure. Uh, yeah, and then let me also to your listeners recommend a book. I, I did read a book by Benson called The Breakout Principle, which mm-hmm. is partly about that process, the process by which we break out of kind of mundane, linear, step-by-step, quotidian kind of thinking into things that are more transcendent. And it, it sometimes happens around motion. sometimes happens around water. Um, so that, you know, people taking showers or taking a bath get transported in there. It's actually a really, really interesting, really interesting book for anyone interested in honing their own creative process, but also understanding that creative process in general. Well, thank you for that. Let's look ahead. Your new book is set to be released on April 1st, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, The Last Career Guide You'll Ever Need. Yes. And it's in the genre of manga. And for those not familiar with the term manga, it means comics in Japanese. And this form is absolutely huge in Japan, I understand. Um, How did you decide to write in this form, and isn't it a risk considering the success, the great success you've had with traditional books? And also I'm curious, you're originally from Ohio. How is it that you have this relationship with Japan? And also, how did you find your illustrator? Oh, my gosh. That's that's 11 questions there. Um, (laughs) I know, but I just want to get you into talking about John. Yeah, okay, so, okay, so let's talk. Well, thank you for mentioning it, and I guess it's another iteration, another example of how my my mind has changed a little bit in the process of working on, on all this. Now, as you say, manga is extremely popular in Japan, 
And what's interesting about manga in Japan are a few things. First, it's not only for kids, it's also for adults. And it's not only stories of ninjas and superheroes and love stories. You can find manga for how to run your finances or how to learn how to cook or the perils of nationalism or any sort of topic like that. So it's so prevalent that today about one-fourth of all printed material in Japan is in manga. Now, manga, as some of your listeners probably know, has become enormously popular here in the United States, but it's still mostly ninja, superhero, love story kinds of stuff. We don't have that genre of manga for adults, and so I decided to try to do it here with this book, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, which is a career guide, but not a typical prose book at all. It's a 160-page graphic novel. Well, good for you, and it's just fascinating. I do think people are reading less, and that we are a very visual, image-based society. So, and, and manga is honest. manga is interesting as a medium too, because it's actually this very powerful combination of word and image. And one of the, you know, I was in Japan last year for a couple of months studying the manga industry. And when you talk to manga artists or talk to manga critics, they all point to this idea that it isn't pictures plus words or words plus pictures. It's a much more synergistic combination of the two. And what that does is that it gives the medium a certain kind of speed, a certain propulsiveness that you don't see in American comics, which are often much more painterly. In some ways, it's more akin to cinema than it is to American comics and its velocity and its sort of constant movement. And I think that's also where the culture is going more broadly. I think that the web is partly about that potent combination of word and image. I think the web is, and our culture in general is very much about speed and propulsiveness. And so I think it's a medium that's very much of the moment. And so I wanted to try to do something in this new medium. The other thing also, though, is that it's a reckoning with, you know, the nature of books, that there are plenty of career guides out there, but most of them stink. And the career guide as a long tome full of references is really obsolete in a world where people are getting so much of their information online. So what I decided to do was say, especially for younger people, is try to say, here are the six key principles of any satisfying, productive career. You want a book that's going to teach you the broad lessons. You'll find the tactical information, how, you know, what words to use in your resume. You'll find that online. What I can teach you, I hope, uh, from my experience and research, are the big picture things, the six key lessons of any satisfying, productive career. And I can make it go down easy in a compelling way by telling a story. And this book tells the story of a fellow named Johnny Bunko who works at the Boggs Corporation, and he has a dark night of the soul. And anyway, without revealing too much, there's some magic chopsticks in the works, and these magic chopsticks turn out to unleash this character named Diana, who is part Cameron Diaz, part Barbara Eden, a kind of kick-ass career advisor. And she proceeds in the course of this story through Johnny's trials and tribulations to teach him the six key lessons of any satisfying, productive career, the sorts of lessons that you're not going to find anywhere else, the sorts of things that people like me who've been in the workforce for 20-plus years know and we wish we had known 20-plus years ago. Now, as to your other questions, the search for the artist is actually kind of interesting. I first searched in Japan, where I was, because I wanted to have a Japanese manga artist, and it ended up not working for a couple of reasons. One was the language barrier. The partnership between artist and writer is actually an important partnership, and the only way to make it work in an authentic way there was to actually introduce a third person there as a translator, 
and I was very dubious about the ability to, to do that. The second is that my publisher, American publisher, insisted that the book read left to right, whereas manga reads right to left. Even translated manga in the United States, they insisted that it read left to right, and as a result, I would have had to hire a manga artist to basically draw in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. So what I did instead, fortunately, because manga has become so popular here in the U.S., there are a number of really talented young manga artists here, and I started reaching out to various sources, and one of the best schools for, again, this is the MFA is the new MBA, or really the BFA is the new MBA, uh, went to talk to some people at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, which has a very good comic art, sequential art program, and I said, you know, who are some of your most promising recent graduates, and found some of them, I went to this at other schools too, and ended up bringing on a fellow named Rob Tenpass, who is just an insanely talented guy. He actually won the Tokyo Pop Rising Stars of Manga competition a couple of years ago, the American Idol of Manga. Just this insanely talented manga artist, American guy, you know, as American as apple pie, but is this really great manga artist and, you know, taught me a lot about how you tell a story visually. And the collaboration was quite fascinating because as this left brain writer kind of guy, you know, I want to write everything. And what Rob was able to do was say, okay, Dan, okay, Johnny doesn't have to say, boy, am I puzzled. I can make him look puzzled. And that's going to be more powerful to the reader than writing it down. And so I think we managed to produce a pretty fun, interesting, good book. Well, I can't wait. And you're modeling a lot of the attributes you're talking about in Whole New Mind and putting out this book in this way, I think, which is wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it is a little bit of a departure. And believe me, some people told me I was crazy. It's like, oh, so you, Mr. Serious, self-proclaimed expert business author, you're going to do a friggin' comic book? And the answer was, yeah. Well, we're all going to see how it goes. We're <laughs> watching and rooting for you. And well, one of, the, one of the lessons that Johnny learns in the book is a, is a very important lesson, I think it's true for artists as well, which is the lesson, make excellent mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so if this turns out not to work out so well, I really think it will go down as an excellent mistake, something that I learned a lot from. Well said. So, Dan, are there any questions that, I mean, you're really on the world stage and doing a lot of interviews, and I just wonder, are there any questions that you don't tend to get asked that you, you wish you would be asked? Um, no, I, I think that the questions that come up are, are generally, I mean, the question that, that I hadn't really contemplated, which you asked earlier, is, question about the possibility of this triggering a broader change in cultural values. That's a very interesting question. I'm going to have to think about that some more. I think that, you know, one question that comes up, I think not often enough, because I think people are reserved or or hesitant to ask it, is the fear that if the world is offering greater returns to these more right-brain kind of capabilities, that I think there's some people out there who feel like, well, I just don't have that. I'm just not that kind of person. And I actually think that's in some ways fundamentally wrong. I think that these right-brain kind of capabilities, whether it's design or story or empathy, are actually fundamentally human abilities. They're they're part of what makes us human. And if you – it's just that they've been so undervalued for so long. Suppressed. Suppressed, exactly. Suppressed that people have – that they've never been called out of hiding because they haven't been that valuable. And so they're like muscles that have atrophied – and, um, you know, people need to work them back into shape. That doesn't mean that everyone is going to become the next de Kooning, but it does mean that more of us can become literate 
in these sorts of capabilities. We can become basically fairly good at these sorts of things. In the same way that we believe that everybody can become literate and numerate, we can learn how to read and write, we can learn how to do basic math. It doesn't mean everyone's going to grow up to become a great novelist or everyone's going to be a great mathematician, but they can develop these basic skills. And I think the same thing is even more true of these right-brain kind of capabilities. And the other the great thing is that I think people will discover, a few people will discover that they're actually profoundly good at, at these sorts of things and that these sorts of things that have been, as you say, suppressed might actually be the contribution they can make to this world. Well, we talk about the right brain and the left brain, but I think the next stage is really to talk about the whole brain, and that's what I think you're pointing to uh, when we talk about symphony and when we talk about using image and word together. A whole-brained person, I tend to think of as somebody who's operating from both mind and heart, and that is what's called for in the culture. That's the reason why I call this book A Whole New Mind, you know, rather than everyone go right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you need to have that. I mean, part of being human is this notion of being imbalanced. You know, you see this throughout a whole range of cultures. And so that is really essential. And as a matter of just sort of hard-headed survival, someone who has these great right-brain abilities who doesn't have these left-brain abilities is going to be in a world of hurt. I so agree with you, and I thought that that was a wonderful double entendre to call it a whole new mind. Hey, thanks. It was such a pleasure having you on the show. Pleasure being on the program, Jari. Thanks for inviting me.